going to be in First Kings 18. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity now to dig into your word. I pray that you would give insight and understanding. And Lord, as we look at it, may we not just see it as a story that we've heard often, but as a story that has deep truths for us. And so I would ask that you would help us to find that and to see it and to understand it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Does it look like I have the rest of them there? Okay. It's been one of those weeks. Have anybody here ever heard of Murphy? Well, in my case, Murphy was an optimist. <clears throat> anyway. Um, a number of different countries in South America you can go to cathedrals or into cathedrals and see clear evidence of what we call syncretism. So here's something, and you look at that and you say, oh, that's kind of hideous looking, and yeah, it would be. Um, that is the earth goddess Pachamama, uh, who's an Inca goddess. The hard part is that this is in the choir loft of the Cusco Cathedral. So it is an actual mixture and many, many, many times in things that are going on in at home or in other places, there are mixtures of that kind of thing happening all through that the the indigenous and, and the Catholic Church. And and it's been basically just kind of ado- adopted and swallowed up with no issue. Syncretism is this, the combining of or mixing of two different forms of belief or religion. Now, in the case of Israel, Jezebel desperately wanted to take over everything and have Baal be the worship, the one, the God that is worshiped. They weren't going to mess with anybody else. Baal was king God and he was the one they were going to give loyalty to. Um, the problem with that is you can't do that. And even for those in Israel who wanted to do, okay, let's do, let's do a little bit of God and a little bit of Baal. That didn't work either. And finally, in this chapter, the key to the whole chapter in the verse is verse 21. How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? How long will you keep on just hobbling along, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to decide what you really believe or don't believe. And um, it's very, very clear that God comes along and says, it's not going to be anybody else if you're going to be an Israelite and a follower. <coughs> Sorry about that. All right, let's get into verse 1, see how far we can get through this. There's a lot of verses. We weren't going to look at every one. But this is uh, three and a half years into uh, the drought. And uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Elijah, Go, present yourself to King Ahab. Wow. Can you imagine what that was going to be like? This is a guy who would have given any kind of ransom if someone would have brought him Elijah. Uh, he had looked for him everywhere, could not find him. And so, 
Well, Elijah went from went to to appear, so that was what he did. Followed up with what God had said, uh, and he, and and again, thinking of Ahab and thinking of Jezebel, thinking of what he had done to their God, because this was a face to face Baal against God, Yahweh, because Baal was the one who brought the green ring, bought the harvests, and brought all those things that they desperately needed to live in that land. And Elijah had come along and said, eh, you're done. Three and a half years, no no rain. So they missed at least three harvest seasons, maybe four, in that time period. <clears throat> now, verse 2. So the, the famine is severe, and Ahab has summoned Obadiah, and they're going to go out looking for people to or find water so they can water some of their cattle if possible. Obadiah was the third highest in the kingdom. Um, he probably would have been known as an administrator or um, as someone who was in charge of the nation or maybe prime minister, that kind of a thing. But he ruled over, not ruled, but he, he was given authority over all of the king's household and all the king's belongings and all the king's properties. Um, and at first you start thinking about that. You go, how could he do that? He must have really been a Baal worshiper. And if you look at it, you find out that we would be wrong. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. And Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. So you've got someone here who is able, for whatever reason, to live out his faith and to live it out in an incredibly difficult place, to do it there in the middle of Samaria. Um, he was a devout believer, so there was no question of that. Um, the incident to which Obadiah refers is only mentioned here, because you know they, they meet and then Obadiah says, hey, you know, if I go tell the king what you say, well, then he's going to say, you know, where is he? And he's going to kill me because I'm not, I didn't bring you in with me. And Elijah promises to come. And um, <clears throat> the incident to which Obadiah refers is only mentioned here, that he had taken prophets and saved them, 50 of them in one cave, 50 in the other. And so you look at that and you say, okay, not only did he worship God, but he put some feet to it in a very dangerous way. Because every day he took water and food to two caves where there were a number of men who had uh, who needed to be to be able to eat. Um, so Elijah did what God asked him, and other prophets of God had, were killed by Jezebel. There were they were there were the the get even reprisals, but there were also many others that were killed just for being just for being people who didn't buy into Baal, at least partially. So in the middle of the plan to replace the worship of Yahweh with Baal, Obadiah takes stuff and he saves the 100 people. <clears throat> Ahab, in verse 5, says, We must check every spring and valley. This is they're going out to see if they can't find more water. Um, I need water for the horses. We need water for the mules. 
So they split up the area between them, and they're looking in every little valley and every little everywhere to see if they can't find some spring they've missed. Can you imagine what that'd be like at the end of a three-and-a-half-year drought? To find only dried-up springs, because that's what they were finding. So they're out there looking and looking. Then verse 7 says, As Obadiah was walking along, um, I'm going to jump on down. We just already covered that. Um, he talks about how the... and you know, Let's just read it. For I swear, verse 10, the Lord God has... The king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth to find you. And each time he told Elijah's not here, the king forced them to... Uh, forced the king of the nation to swear the truth of the claim. And you now say, go, go and tell my, tell my, your master, but as soon as I leave here, you're going to get spirited away and I will, I will be stuck facing Ahab by myself and you'll be safe and sound somewhere else. Anyway, so let's move on to the application here. Lesson one from Obadiah's life. Stay where God places you. That's a bad place to have to be, isn't it? I mean, I could think of a lot of other places I'd rather work and serve, but God had said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Obadiah be there for good reasons. He's gonna be my representative and he's gonna, he's gonna make a difference in the way people get treated because he's there. So stay. Um, where God places you until he moves you in some special way. And second one, severe faithful, serve faithfully. Do your best always, even for an ungodly employer. Can you imagine every day getting up and saying, oh man, I got to work for this guy and I got to do my best job for this guy? And that's the hard part, isn't it? Because Obadiah knew what God expected. It uh, might not have been what King Ahab expected, but God was expecting him to behave in a certain moral standard, and that's probably why he kept his job so long. Others had had the job and perhaps lost it because they were cheating the king out of resources. Serve faithfully and do, the, do your best always. Um, I love the fact that he... he just said, okay, I will go, I will do what I need to do, I'll keep honoring God. And, uh, you know, Joseph, like Joseph Obadiah, just kept doing what he needed to do. He, would, he wasn't a slave like Joseph, but he was certainly in a position of, um, of power related to someone who was wicked and evil. The next one is a quote that any high official that a minister of state could retain his virtue in that cesspool of corruption, that hotbed of idolatry and immorality, and the very time that Jezebel was cutting off the Lord's prophets would seem to be altogether out of the question. So you're looking at the thinking, okay, 
What are they saying? Well, they're saying that, that it would, for somebody to actually do this, they'd have to be crazy. You know? Because they're, they're going to be asked to do some incredible things. Uh, and they're going to be living and working in the cesspool of corruption. Think of the, the way that that's described. Um, and then a hotbed of idolatry and immorality. And of course he's there with both Jezebel and Ahab, having to deal with both of them and the things that they would say or do. Let's go on to the next one, which is depend. Depend or count on God's power to live a holy life. How was it that Obadiah was not discovered and killed? He trusted God. And he said, Lord, you're calling me to this? Then I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of me. And I think in his own thinking, he also knew that if the time was right and he was supposed to come home and meet the Lord, he was willing to do that. And so there's this sense of uh, count on God's power to live a holy life. You know, nobody lives with Jezebel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and is not not tainted at all by it. That's a horrible way to live. And yet, that's where God had placed him. Last one, in faith in God, can, if faith in God can survive in Jezebel's court, it can survive anywhere. And I've been reading some about the persecuted church lately and Again, realizing more and more what happens in the persecuted church is something that that takes place for a while in some areas and then disappears and goes somewhere else. And so it's not always the exact same places experiencing the exact same things. Um, but like Obadiah, we're called to stand firm on the truth of God's word. We're called to live out that truth every day. Another implication so far, the story of Elijah, we have seen God use unusual methods right, to accomplish his plans. He sends ravens as food dispensers, and he sends Elijah to a widow in order to provide for her needs and his own. And now we see that he chooses the third most powerful person in Samaria to provide for uh, his needs. Um, just amazing when you think about it. <clears throat> so God does protect those who are serving him, and if he doesn't protect them or if their task is done and they are called home, he is protecting them even through that whole process as well. And sometimes we forget that the fact that God does bring some of his people home does not mean that God isn't disapproved. Of anything that they've done. <coughs> Sorry about that. So because God is an infinite God, a sovereign God, we cannot put him in a box or tell him, this is how you have to do it. <clears throat> an infinite sovereign God has an infinite um, options and ways that he can work. Uh, maybe one of the things that we learn from this is none of us would have thought about the third person in the kingdom of Samaria would be a righteous man whom God would use in very specific ways to carry on specific tasks. It's interesting when, when I think of that. Many times I think 
we think of Christianity and how it moves and, and where it goes, and we think of it as it's this uh, it's just how we understand it. And one time in Detroit, I was called to interpret um, for a meeting of all places at a circus. Now, this is one of those circuses that came along and had their own big tent and all that kind of stuff. So I was called and said, listen, we've got a meeting that we're having, and one of our people doesn't speak any English, so we need to have you come. And so I went and actually sat in the, sat in the ring for a while and watched things. But when it was all over, then we were at this meeting. There was a meeting with everybody. And then there was a meeting that I was to have with the Spanish, uh, person, Spanish act, actress here, yeah, and, um, and her, and, and the boss of the, of the, uh, um, circus. So anyway, <clears throat> when I was translating, one of the things that came up was the announcement that for those of you that are interested, in a Bible study tomorrow morning, Sunday, it'll be going at 8 o'clock just after breakfast. I could have fallen off my chair. I thought, nobody, nobody here knows anything about God. They're all pagans. I mean, look at, look at how they live. Look at what they do. And uh, it would certainly not have been the place I would have started a church. Um, so anyway, I went and found the guy that had been the, who made the announcement. And I said, I really appreciate what you're doing. He said, no. He said, I've been doing this for years. Every chance I get, I'll, I'll say, hey, this is open to anybody who wants to come. Please come. If you don't come, that's okay, too. And he said, it's been one of the coolest things to see people move from maybe no faith at all to thinking that maybe it's true to eventually, this is true. And so I thought, wow, if God can work in Samaria and in the, in, in the very palace, of Jezebel and Ahab, and, and he can work any circus that he wants. That's kind of cool. Anyway, let's go up to uh, the showdown. So Ahab comes along, and he says, Oh, it's you, the troublemaker of Israel. I just love that phrase. Um, there's nothing that happened to Israel that happened because of something Elijah did, other than to pray for it. And they're to call down God's judgment as a result. But it wasn't that he was out there seeking the destruction of Israel. So, <clears throat> he said, you and your family are, he said back to him, uh, no, it's not me, it's you and your family that are the troublemakers. Uh, you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, He's talking to Ahab at this point very specifically. Summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So here we are again. The situation is being set. And when you stop and think about it, technically, you know, the mountains and the the clouds and that kind of thing, that was Baal's home territory. He really had the, um, at least the thought was that he had home field advantage in some, on some place like Mount Carmel. And so that's, I'm sure, why Elijah said, hey, bring them all to Mount Carmel. We'll meet you there. We'll take care of things. So time is set 
for them all to come. Uh, Elijah does not go back down. He challenges Ahab for abandoning God by worshiping Baal. And then he, he continues to go. Let's look at this map, <clears throat> just so that we have a sense of. That's where Mount Carmel is. You can see the Samaria itself is just south of that. And so he's gathering all the people in Israel and saying, okay, this is where we're going to meet. I'm sure they set a date or time or whatever, and everybody was supposed to go, including the prophets. Now, Mount Carmel had also been associated with Baal worship for years, so that's another one of those things. Um, So stop and think about it. The 400 prophets of Asherah did not go. But the 450 prophets of Baal did. And so you've got a 450 to 1 is the, the ratio of what's going on there. And then here's that verse that we've read. Verse 21. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And this is the, I just still don't understand this. But the people were completely silent. So there are people that that are saying, they look, both look good to me. You know, I'm going to hang on to both. So Elijah goes to the top of the mountain. And again, like I said, he challenged them. Verse 21 again, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? And uh, just challenging them in every way he can to say, listen, you are not even living. You're paralyzed. Um It's interesting because for the Jewish people, there was always a sense of God said, I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. That's all the way through the prophets. It's all the way through Deuteronomy. It's all the way through a whole bunch of places where God is making it very clear. I am exclusively the one and only God of the universe. That's who I am. And so... When this is starting to to evolve and and play itself out, that's one of the things that Joshua had pointed out to them. When Joshua had brought them into the promised land and settled them down, um, he asked them, if serving the Lord is undesirable for you, then choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Joshua's response to the um, to that claim. Baal worship did not require a choice. You can be a faithful follower of Baal and still follow God. From Baal's perspective. From God's perspective, that wasn't the case at all. You followed and served and honored God and nobody else. So anyway, they all get up there on the mountain. Um... You wonder at this point, what was Elijah thinking when he's got 450 prophets of Baal 
and a whole bunch of people who weren't interested in making any kind of a stand. Uh, there was nobody that said, I'm with you, prophet. As far as we know, not one person responded that way. So, <clears throat> so this is where the test comes in. And again, you can have a lot of fun with this. But the reality is, this is a deadly, deadly, deadly thing that was going to happen. There was a lot of people who were going to be killed as a result of what happened on Mount Mount Carmel. So they get the bulls up there on the mountaintop. And Elijah says to the prophets, hey, take, take whichever bull you choose. Build an altar. Put the wood on it. Put the bull on it. And then call on your God to bring fire down from heaven to consume your altar, uh, consume your offering. And, uh, they were, they were total agreement with that. So, um, they get going. You know, here's the story. I mean, these guys are doing everything. I mean, think about it from their perspective. They could be losing their livelihood, if not their lives, because Elijah doesn't mess around. And these are people who deserve to die under Old Testament law for the way they had behaved and taken others totally in the wrong direction. So the two elders are there, and, and actually Elijah at this point is just watching. You know, they build their altar, they put the bull on the on the wood. <clears throat> And they're praying and calling out. And you got to imagine that 450 people doing that all at the same time had to have been something else. And um, <clears throat> so they're, they're kind of wondering what's going to happen here. And um, they were praying and praying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply. Elijah was not contending for the Lord's equal position with Baal. Baal, but God's exclusive Uniqueness. So about noontime, <clears throat> so probably nine-ish is when they had gotten that f- first altar built and the bulls on it. About noontime, uh, my favorite part of the story, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder than that, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Because he is daydreaming or is he relieving himself or maybe he is away on a trip. Or is he asleep and needs to be awakened? So they shouted louder and followed their normal custom. They cut themselves with knives and swords and the blush gushed out. So you got 400 people just going crazy with us, with swords and knives and stuff. And uh, nothing happens. So after another three or four hours go by, Elijah calls the people over and says, okay, Let's build an altar. And so they build an altar. They use 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes. Um, they <clears throat> go ahead and put the wood on it. They cut the bull up. And then um, Elijah said, I want, well, let's, let's soak this with, uh, with water. And of course, you've heard the story. Three times they totally soak the offering and the bull and everything else. And it runs down and into the trench that he's dug around. Now, again, think about this. My guess is Elijah built that altar himself. 
There was nobody there saying, hey, can I help you, prophet? No, not a chance. They still hadn't decided which direction they were going to go with all this. After about three hours then, he did not want them to quit until their futility of their anxious, their actions was totally seen. So probably about six hours from the time that they stopped till they got back into it and it kept going for a while. Then Elijah called the people over, come over here. They all crowded him as he... As he took the stones, as he built the altar, piled the wood on, so they were, they were there watching the whole thing, poured the water. Elijah waited the six hours for the prophets of Baal to, to do their thing. Their delay made it possible for the Baal prophets to claim that, that they had actually won. It wouldn't happen this way. Um, so he summoned the people, and they gathered around. So just just look at the humility in Elijah's actions. Um, yeah, go ahead and put that one up. Thank you. Uh, he repairs God's altar. He digs a trench around it. He arranged the wood of the bull on the altar, soaked the sacrifice and the altar time three times, and then he prays to God. No hysterics, no cutting on himself in any way, shape, or form. Um, in verse 30, he says, O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant Prove that I have done all of this at your command, O Lord. Answer me, answer me so that those people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Remember, this is the point for Elijah. You need to know that this is God doing this and that he wants you to come back to him. That was the point of it all. Um. And verse 38 is, is a great verse. Immediately, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stone, and the dust, and even licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. So, are we seeing a conversion? It's really hard to know here. From the future history, it, it, this was a blip. It might have caused some change, but what you see coming in the next few chapters make you realize it hasn't changed that much. Lessons from Elijah that we learn when we are in the in the will and when we are in God's will, we are invincible. And um, I, I, I want to be really careful with that statement. I just want to say that when we are doing what God wants us to do, he watches over us. Not that we can't die, not that we can't be hurt, not that we can't have struggles, but God is at work, 
and he helps with whatever the situation is, giving us the strength, the peace, and the grace that we need. The second thing, trying to mix faith with anything else is sin. You can't mix believing in God with believing in Baal. And then our most effective weapon is always prayer. Never underestimate the power of God and one life dedicated to God. I want to again, again go back to the whole thought that <clears throat> Elijah was trying to focus their thoughts and minds on the fact that there is one God and only one God that we should worship. And so you think about the fact that Elijah probably was quoting Moses as he spoke in different times. And Exodus 23 said, You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isn't that incredible? So you've got... You've got him saying, hey guys, we are supposed to be worshiping God and only God. And matter of fact, he told us that way back in Exodus. And then Joshua reminded us, and we just looked at that a minute ago, but um, verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away, this never ceases to amaze me. It's at the end of Joshua's career. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So there's a, a recognition here that amongst the people of God, there were still those who had some of these household gods and other things that they were trying to kind of keep hidden, but they, they were there. And Joshua was saying, listen, throw that stuff away. Get rid of it. Um, serve the Lord. And then he goes on to say, but if serving the Lord seems too undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. So the whole idea of no other God but me was something that was laid down very, very early for Israel. And it was re-focused on many, many times so that the people of Israel realized that we are supposed to be following and honoring the Lord our God. No matter what that means and no matter what that looks like, that's where our, uh, that's where our hard work should be. Let's go to the next one, please. Well, that, probably not where I wanted it to be. <laughs> okay. So it goes to show you, sometimes you make these plans and you go over and over and over them. Is there a slide that says principles to live by? There you go. See, I put it in there just so that you could go looking for it. Principles to live by. <clears throat> we will obey God's commands to the degree that we believe His commands. So if we believe God has said, do not commit adultery, it is something that I absolutely hate. 
then that's something that we wouldn't do. And that's true of any anything God has said or put uh, something on. Um, there comes a time when private faith must become public, uh, public loyalty. Now, <clears throat> again, I don't think that Obadiah was expected to suddenly become someone who would stand up in the king's palace and, and require that they all pray together before they eat. I, that's just not, it wasn't going to happen. Um, that didn't mean he couldn't pray and that he couldn't encourage people who were uh, needed to have prayers for them as well. Uh, there comes a time when private faith must become public loyalty. And the third one, whether we live by fear or by faith, is determined by our certainty that the Lord is the living God. Isn't that incredible? Um, fear or faith, we can determine um, by the certainty of living out the truth of God's word. And then the next one, whether we live by fear or faith, whether we live by fear or faith is determined by our certainty that the Lord is the living God. There's next one, there is no middle ground between the loyalty of God and the commitment to any other. Um, And then, Spiritual commitment must rest on the convincing proof of personal preferences. Um, My preferences need to be in line with the Word of God. So if I've got a preference and I want to stand on that preference, then first I measure to make sure that it matches what God says. And if it does, well then I live that through and I go with that. Again, just a reminder, this is, I think, so easy to happen. First Kings 18.21 Elijah was, went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two option, opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, when the fire came down from heaven, yeah, they went, yeah, rah, 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 let's run after the prophets of Baal, let's catch them, let's kill them at the Kidron book. But that's all Elijah's saying, this is what needs to happen, let's go do this. And they joined him in that. But there does not seem to be a long-term result from what happened on Mount Carmel. And you sit back, and I think maybe one of the things that causes chapter 19 were... Elijah moves and just leaves the area is that Elijah was hoping that having this big confrontation on Mount Carmel was going to bring about a revival of massive proportions in Samaria. And it didn't. It just didn't. And so, again, one of those things that you sit back and you go, Lord, what are you doing? And he doesn't always tell us. I guess I just want to say that may we never be in a situation where we say nothing when called upon 
to state who or what we believe in and why. Now, I'm not saying you have to jump up on a soapbox and scream and holler at everybody going by. Most of the time, I've not seen that to be very effective. But to be able to say to a friend or to see, say to a coworker or whatever, to just share little bits and pieces of what you're learning, just about how cool God's Word is, that those are wonderful things we can do, which kind of puts some salt out there and encourage people to think through what's going on with them. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Elijah who went through incredible, incredible difficulty and then also went to mountaintops and did amazing things. Lord, the fact that he was such a willing servant to do whatever you required of him it just kind of makes me sit back in, in awe and wonder. And I begin to realize even more what an amazing prophet, what an amazing man of God he was. So thank you for the lessons that we learned from First Kings 18. In your name we pray. Amen.